Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all, Kingsway, for almost a year now. And I've been coming to Kingsway for almost four years, and that just sounds crazy. Uh, I hope you all are doing well this morning. Hope everyone that joined in online is doing well. We are going to be continuing our series over John's Gospel this morning. Um, and just a heads up about this passage, it's a little strange, but it's also really challenging. So my hope is that we wouldn't get caught up in necessarily how strange the passage might seem. Uh, my hope is that while the gospel sometimes gets in our face and sometimes challenges us in uncomfortable ways, my hope and my prayer for this morning is, uh, is that while the gospel gets in our face, um, it, we can feel it simultaneously wrapping its arms around us in the wonderful grace of Jesus. So we're going to be doing chapter 9 this morning, and we're just going to jump right into it. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? So this was a really common belief in Jewish culture was that any kind of calamity or any kind of suffering in your life was a result of great sin, whether it was your parents' sins or whether it was your own sins. So the disciples, while they're walking along, see this man and ask Jesus, dude, who went wrong for him to be like this? Like, isn't God just? Like, who went wrong that this man was born blind? I want to laser in right here for a second. The disciples, very with Jesus' response here, he actually raises a bigger question. Let's check it out. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. So the disciples ask, why? Why, Jesus? But with his answer, he raises the question, how? This is so practical for me because I get caught up so often about asking myself, wow, why do I feel like this? Why do I feel stuck? Why is the world around me like this? And I don't think in this passage that Jesus is, is just throwing away the question why and saying, never ask why. But he's saying sometimes it might be more beneficial to look at the how. And that when we see someone else who maybe isn't dealt the best hand of cards, or we begin to realize the darkness in ourselves, rather than pondering the question why, maybe ask how. How can the cross reflect through my life? How? Let's keep going. We'll come back to that. So these two verses challenged me greatly when I was trying to study this passage, and I won't be able to take you all the way through my journey with these two verses um, carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, if you have about a million questions about these two verses, I did too. And I encourage you, this, this is very deep. And if you want to look into it, that's awesome. But for time's sake this morning, I'll leave it at this. The disciples had something very special when they had Jesus with them. And simply what he's saying is, guys, while I'm around, don't waste your time with me. And of course, you know, I can make that practical. And in the, in the age-old age theme of, of not wasting time, I mean, we could go into that. But for time's sake, we'll just leave it at that. Let's keep going. This is where things get a little strange. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. <laughs> I would love to see that verse on like a mug or like a t-shirt or an art, a Pinterest art or something. Just, that verse is very strange. 
and you don't have to not think it's strange. It's okay to think it's strange. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. There's two things I want to talk about here. The pool of Siloam was actually very significant. It was used in a a lot of different purification rituals and other things to purify. So when Jesus sends him to the pool of Siloam and he washes his eyes in the pool of Siloam and he can see the pool of Siloam. It's not like, oh, Siloam was this special water. Jesus healed him. That had nothing to do with the pool of Siloam. You track in there? So the end here is the man came back seeing. That's miraculous. And, and a lot of stories in, in the Gospels tend to end like that. Not a lot, but some. Of We see Jesus do something miraculous, and then we kind of just clap it and go on. And that's great. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But John ultimately makes a bigger point by pulling back the curtain on this man's life and just giving us a little insight to what happens after he was healed, which I think is just fascinating anyways. Let's check it out. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? This implies that this man had been begging for a long time. Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. Of course, the beggar kept saying, yeah, I'm the same one. We'll see that the beggar has to be incredibly blunt throughout, throughout this whole passage. Let's keep going. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. I wonder how they react. No, he replied, which is a pretty logical response. He was blind. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. So the Sabbath was like a super sacred day of rest. You couldn't walk a certain amount of like cubits, and there were a bunch of re- weird rules to keep it sacred and restful. Um, I won't go too far into that. Let's keep going. So the Pharisees hear this, and they ask the man all about it. And he told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. <laughs> He's a broken record. Let's keep checking it out. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. He's not following the rules. He's not following our agenda of what the Messiah or, or anybody, I mean, for that matter, nobody could heal on the Sabbath. But others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. I find it really interesting, the Pharisees' perspective on an ordinary sinner. Their perspective, God doesn't listen to ordinary sinners. Of course, I read that, I'm like, oh gosh. But here at the end is something super significant. You can go back just for a second. There was deep division of opinion among them. So at first glance, it might seem like this passage is all about healing. But it might be a little bit more about opinions. A little bit of foreshadowing there. Let's keep going. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? This doesn't sound very significant, but it's actually very significant. The, the Pharisees don't normally ask for other people's opinions. Like, it just doesn't really happen. So for them to be like, okay, we're divided. We don't, together, we don't know. We're divided. He healed you. What do you think? That really is an insight for us to how perplexed the Pharisees actually are here in this passage. And of course, the man here replies, he says, I think he must be a prophet. And I know that some of us read this and we're like, What? 
Like he just healed your eyes. You don't think he's the son of God? You think he's a prophet? No, no, no. no. Let's, let's put this in context and just look at the time. It was actually very significant to call someone a prophet. That was a very high regard. And here, we just have a little bit of this man's perspective about Jesus open up. And we'll see throughout the entire passage how his perspective on who Jesus is evolves. It's really fascinating. Let's keep going. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man who had been blind and could, the man had been blind and could now see. They called in his parents, <laughs> they're bringing mama in, and they asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And how, how do the parents answer here? His parents replied, we know this is our son, and that, that's see, or, or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. They left their son to the wolves. <laughs> I don't know if I have any parents in here that are just like, you didn't stand up for him. You just, he's old enough. Ask him. And, and I wish I could elaborate for you and tell you more about that, but actually, John does that right. leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said he's old enough. Ask him. This was a mandate that was catching traction as the early Jesus movement began to grow. Synagogues were excommunicating people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And some scholars even think that the Sanhedrin, the highest level of Jewish court, adopted this mandate of of anyone saying Jesus is the Messiah. We we think what he's saying is so blasphemous that we're going to excommunicate you. Being excommunicated from the synagogue isn't just like, oh, we'll go find a different church. It's a lot different than that. It was highly weaved into the social world at the time. You were excommunicated from society. It it was a big deal to be excommunicated. So that's why they're like, "Mm, we're not having anything to do with this. Next verse here. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. See, what they're doing here is they're trying to pressure him. They're saying, okay, we, we know what's going on. Don't lie in front of God. Tell us what's going on. And his response here is really significant. He says, I don't know whether he is a sinner, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. This is so true and so practical. And when I read this, I was like, oh heck, like I wish I was more like this. Because when I get tough moral questions, tough ethical questions, tough political questions, tough theological questions, so many times I try to just dazzle up my answers, use big fancy words, make it sound like sometimes I know what I'm talking about, when really there's a lot of power in just saying, yeah, that's a tough question. I, I don't know, but I know this. I know what Jesus did for me, and I'll stick to that. And a lot of the funny thing about it is a lot of the time when you're just genuine about where you are and what you know, that answers their question a lot of the time a lot better than just pulling something out can. I think that's something I've, I've learned from this passage. Let's keep going. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? And we see, we see emotions begin to raise here. And the man says, look, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? And look what he says here. Do you want to become his disciples too? You want to follow him? No, no, no. Do you want to become his disciples too? As in he's already a disciple? Okay, wait. You think Jesus is a prophet. We see his perspective open up there. But now you are 
his disciple? We begin to see this man's perspective on Jesus rapidly evolve throughout the next handful of verses. And I don't want you to miss it. I think it's super significant. Let's keep going. And then they cursed him. See, saying that Jesus was the Messiah and that you were his disciple, holy cow. I mean, that was like hitting a hornet's nest. Like, don't do that. So they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. (laughs) This is a funny response. I like to think he gets like a top hat and a monocle and gets like super fancy on them. He goes, why, that's very strange, he replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Okay, let's talk about verse 31 for a second, because that doesn't sit very well with me. I'm like, oh gosh, God doesn't listen to sinners? And if we just take this story in context, and we look at what's going on here, this was an uneducated blind man he gets healed, and he just says what he knows. That's, that's what this guy's famous for, <laughs> literally. So when he says this in verse 31, we need to go back and look at verse 16, where the Pharisees say, you know, ordinary sinners can't do miraculous signs. Ordinary sinners can't do anything miraculous. So when the blind man says this, and we look at it in context, he's very much just playing on the Pharisees' court. I mean, that's where he picked this up, was from their conversation a minute ago. Let's keep going. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Okay, there's the perspective thing again. He thought Jesus was a prophet, you're Jesus' disciple, but now you think he's from God? Hmm. That's not the end. Don't worry. (laughs) Let's keep going. You were born a total sinner, they answered. I assume this was because of his blindness. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. We see the Pharisees' stubbornness come to a climax here. Their stubbornness, their hard-heartedness come to a climax here. And they excommunicate the guy. No, you can go back for a second. And they excommunicate the guy. They're saying, no, we're not going to listen to your evidence. We don't want to hear your argument. We definitely don't want to be his disciple. You're out of here. You can go to the next one now. So Jesus here, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And I'm sure at this point, he's just willing to do whatever Jesus says, I imagine. And Jesus says, you have seen him, and he is speaking to you. And this is how the beggar replies here, so significant. Yes, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. That sounds pretty simple to us, but this is actually probably the complete reason the verse or the story didn't end with the man just being able to see. We know that John's gospel is written so that, so that we may believe. And the reason that John pulls back the curtain to let us see this whole interaction is because the blind beggar ends up believing in Jesus. We can't miss that. So prophet, disciple, you think he's from God, but we see the completion of this man's sight here when he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and he worships him. And then we see his sight completely open. But the story doesn't end here. Jesus says one little puzzling thing that I think is very, very practical. Then Jesus told them, I entered this world to render judgment. 
Okay, pause for a second. There's that word, judgment. And I know when we think of judgment, we think, we think Jesus is like, okay, I'm coming to smite some. That's not what he's saying here. This is a lot more like when I was 13. And I couldn't see the board at school. And I, I just squint, and it was just blurry. And I remember the first pair of glasses I had. And I remember putting the glasses on for the first time. And I think my 13-year-old self said that the world was in HD. I think that's what my 13-year-old self said. And, and this is the judgment that Jesus is talking about. He explains here, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. And the Pharisees hear this and are blind. And then, and then the, the chapter ends like this with Jesus saying, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. The thought, the thought here is this. Blindness, a lot of the times, looks like a claim to sight. A lot of the times the guy who's like, I know it's like this, 100%, stake in the ground, line in the sand, I'm not budging. A lot of the times that looks like blindness. But that's, that's a two-sided coin, it's a double-edged sword. Because a lot of the time, true sight, true understanding, Looks like verse 25. Looks like that guy's saying, I, I don't know, but I know what Jesus did for me. That's true sight. There's an, there's an amazing psychological effect that goes directly with this passage. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Anybody heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Sweet. This is actually super fascinating. It's the concept that you, you can't understand that you don't understand. You can't understand that you don't understand. So when this was explained to me, there was an amazing story used that I think just says it so well. There was a man who went to rob a bank. And he, he went to this bank with, with no mask, just went straight in. And he goes and he gets the money from the teller. And on his way out of the bank, he stops in front of the security camera. And he waves and smiles at the camera. And he walks out of the bank. And so obviously... He gets caught, and when he gets caught, he's genuinely surprised that they found him. How did you, how'd you find me? So they interrogate the man. He is mentally sound, by the way. And they interrogate the man, and he thought that he was going to be invisible to the security cameras because he covered himself in lemon juice. I'm not kidding. This is a real story. He covered himself in lemon juice because invisible ink is made with lemon juice. Okay, that sounds crazy. That's a mistake we can learn from our mistakes. No, 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 not this guy. They bring the footage of him waving and smiling at the camera, and he says it's fake footage. He couldn't understand that he doesn't understand. He lacked the knowledge to understand that he lacked the knowledge. David Dunning in an interview, Dunning, said something really profound about, about this effect. He said, it's so easy for us to look at other people and, and point this effect at them and say, oh, they just don't understand that they don't understand. But it's so, so challenging to turn that around on ourselves. So challenging. It's easy for us to look at this story and point our finger at the Pharisees. Oh, you guys, you guys just can't understand that you don't get it. But it's nearly impossible for us, for, for myself, to look at my own life and say, I don't understand. 
Vance Habner had an amazing quote, and I'm on it right here. He said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And we see that the same light in this story melts the heart of the blind man, but hardens the heart of the Pharisees. Because they had already made up their minds on how things it ought to be. Despite of perfect evidence, despite of footage of you doing it, they had made up their mind that it was that way. So, we're painted a spectrum here, if you will. And on one end of the spectrum, we have the blind man. He doesn't know how his life had ought to look. He doesn't know how his world had ought to look, at least from the story. He just knows what Jesus did for him. And then on the other end of the spectrum over here, we have the Pharisees, who were so caught up in how their lives had ought to look, and so caught up in how their world had ought to look, that they had leveraged their opinions over others, and ultimately blinded themselves to what's really going on. Tunnel vision their perspective, and it's really kind of ironic that the blind guy was the one that could see, but the people who could see were the blind ones. And I don't know where you fall into this spectrum on how our world had ought to look, how our lives had ought to look. I don't want to come in here and tell you I think knowledge is bad or I think asking why is bad. I think asking why is a very powerful question. And I think learning is a very powerful thing. But I just, I fear that we get so caught up in our own opinions and our own opinions on how our world had ought to look and how our lives had ought to look that we lose sight of the bigger picture. So I come to you with this this morning. No matter where you are, I think we can all agree that our lives and our world had ought to look a lot more like the cross. And when I say the cross, I, I, I hope you don't think I mean silencing love, murder, killing innocent, because that's not what I mean. I mean inviting sacrificial love into our own lives, inviting selfless love into our own lives, inviting the Jesus compassion into our own lives, and ultimately his love into our own lives and out to our world. So as we move into a time of communion, a time for us to remember, to take the bread and the juice, this week, I just want to push us away from the question of why. And I want to turn us to the question of how. How can you make your world and your life reflect the cross? And practically, I don't know what that looks like for each of you. Perhaps it looks like reaching forward to someone older or reaching down to someone younger. Maybe it looks like going to the most lonely, hurt person in your life and just telling them you're there for them. Maybe it looks like addressing that part of your heart that hasn't been addressed in a long time. I don't know. But my prayer is that we can meditate on the question how ultimately look more like the cross. We're going to move into a time of communion in just a second. There's going to be the whole band up here playing, and while the song's playing, you just freely make your way to the back. There's two tabs. Top tab's bread. Bottom tab is juice. How can we make our lives and our world reflect the cross? Let me pray for you.